Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Wednesday, May 5th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. Company tries running Facebook ads that transparently point out how Facebook ads work. Facebook blocks the ads. Shocking. Mermaid diving, like free diving but while wearing a mermaid tail, is quickly becoming a real sport. Dunbar's number says human brains can't keep up with more than 150 casual friendships, but new research disagrees. And it's time to vote on a name for the newest baby raven at the Tower of London. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. Xeno Signal, the encrypted messaging app, Yesterday, they shared a series of ads that they tried to run on Instagram, but which apparently crossed a line because Facebook shut down the ad account they used before any of the ads could run. The ads in question? A bunch of blue graphics with white text that reveal exactly what targeted data was used to make the ad show up on your feed. So, for example, one of the graphics reads, quote, You got this ad because you're a K-pop-loving chemical engineer. This ad used your location to see you're in Berlin, and you have a new baby, and you just moved, and you're really enjoying those pregnancy exercises lately. Another one said, quote, You got this ad because you're a goth barista and you're single. This ad used your location to see you're in Clinton Hill, and you're either vegan or lactose intolerant, and you're really feeling that yoga lately. End quote. And one more, just because these are kind of funny. Quote, you got this ad because you're a certified public accountant in an open relationship. This ad used your location to see that you're in South Atlanta. You're into natural skincare, and you've supported Cardi B since day one. End quote. So a pretty great idea, right? And you know, as funny as the wording of some of them are, they didn't make any of that up. Anyone who's ever bought an ad on Facebook can tell you that there are endless options you can customize ads for. Some basic info that you told Facebook, like your age and location, but also others that are more based on your behavior online, what content you see and spend time with on your feed. It's super creepy, and that was the point of this ad campaign, to remind people of just how creepy this is. But apparently, Facebook doesn't want you to be reminded of how creepy their business model is and allegedly shut this campaign down. Alongside a screenshot of their ad account being disabled, Signal wrote the following in a blog post, quote, We created a multivariant targeted ad designed to show you the personal data that Facebook collects about you and sells access to. The ad would simply display some of the information collected about the viewer which the advertising platform uses. Facebook was not into that idea. Facebook is more than willing to sell visibility into people's lives unless it's to tell people about how their data is being used. Being transparent about how ads use people's data is apparently enough to get banned. In Facebook's world, the only acceptable usage is to hide what you're doing from your audience. End quote. Facebook has since responded, accusing Signal of never having even tried to run the ads. They said, quote, This is a stunt by Signal, who never even tried to actually run these ads, and we didn't shut down their ad account for trying to do so. If Signal had tried to run the ads, a couple of them would have been rejected because our advertising policies prohibit ads that assert that you have a specific medical condition or sexual orientation, as Signal should know. But of course, running the ads was never their goal. It was about getting publicity. End quote. 
And that could be true, of course, but I have to say it's a pretty bold statement when Signal literally included screenshots of their ad account being disabled. Like, at the very least, claimed that the account was disabled for some benign reason or an unintended error, but saying they never ran the ads to begin with is a pretty wild statement. Unless, of course, it's true, and Signal photoshopped the image of their account being disabled. Based on track record, I'm much more likely to believe Signal than Facebook here, but hey, they could be lying. Photoshop is real. Whatever the truth is, the impact of the ad campaign remains. Though, just like Shoshana Wadinsky at Gizmodo, despite understanding the point that I should be creeped out by these, I'm honestly so hopelessly ingrained in data minds anyways that I'm just genuinely sad I won't get to see what my ad would have been. Maybe you've seen this in a picture somewhere, or in a video, maybe even in real life. A kid, or sometimes an adult, in a swimming pool, wearing an honest-to-god mermaid tail. They've been a bit of a trend for a while now, especially among preteen girls. I was at a resort-style hotel in Orlando a while back that even had a morning kids' activity of mermaid swimming that provided tails for all the kids, and offered shark fins for the boys because, you know, gender. But apparently, mermaid tails are not just for little kids, or even just for Instagrammable photo ops for adults. Mermaid diving has become an officially standardized activity with schools around the world and certified mermaid diving courses on offer from PADI, the Professional Association of Diving Instructors, the world's largest diving association. Similar to free diving, in which you don't wear a tank, you just hold your breath, mermaid diving really only differs in that you're, well, wearing a mermaid tail. And similar to the real-world version of Quidditch, the very item that makes it look ridiculous is also what makes it a surprisingly challenging athletic feat. In the case of Muggle Quidditch, running around with a broom between your legs means that all of the dodgeballs and volleyballs used in the game have to be thrown and caught with just one hand. With mermaid diving, your legs are stuck together in a hunk of lycra, so you can't move them independently. Dada Li, a mermaid diver and China's ambassador to Patty, told CNN, quote, Instead, we need to use our belly and waist to move like a dolphin. It requires practice to make this movement smooth and elegant like a real mermaid. End quote. And the activity is particularly popular in China right now. Yan Lu, Patty's Greater China president, told CNN that mermaid courses account for a third of all local certificates in China right now, and Corinna Davids, the head of development of mermaid courses at Scuba Schools International, said there are 1,000 mermaid instructors across China, as well as several SSI centers that only offer mermaid programs now. She says it's been a really great entry point for people who may not have otherwise been interested in free diving or scuba diving, but are now sticking around to try those too, even without the mermaid tails. And Lou points out that those newcomers are predominantly women and younger people, helping diversify a sometimes homogenous activity. And to top it all off, last week 100 mermaid divers gathered at the Atlantis Sanya Resort and Aquarium in China to break the record for the largest underwater mermaid show. Mermaid mania has officially hit China, and by all accounts, it's starting to be taken pretty seriously, even if it will always be a little whimsical and fortunately self-aware. But who knows, maybe one day we'll have mermaid diving as a sport in the Olympics. 
I mean, if we've got esports sort of added now, why not? Dunbar's number. That theory proposed by British anthropologist and evolutionary psychologist Robin Dunbar back in the early 90s that basically said our we human brains are only capable of maintaining social relationships with 150 other people. The theory got a lot of attention again with the advent of online social networks like Facebook, which maxed you out at 5,000 friends. Any discussion of what constitutes a true friend and what keeping in touch with people really meant in this day and age would usually go back to Dunbar's number, and whether or not it was or still is an accurate number. Well, researchers from Stockholm University in a study published today in the journal Biology Letters say no. Dunbar's number does not actually hold up. They pretty much disagree with the whole method he used to get there. So Dunbar's number is actually a series of different numbers based on several different types of relationships. 1,500 is the number of people that you can name. 500 is the max cap on acquaintances. 50 is good friends but not exactly your confidants. 15, actually close friends. 5, best friends, loved ones, or the majority of your MySpace top 8. And then the most frequently cited 150 is stable friendships that you have regular contact with, so in between those acquaintances and good friends. Quoting Science Alert, Dunbar's number was originally predicated on the idea that the volume of the neocortex in primate brains functions as a constraint on the size of the social groups they circulate amongst. It is suggested that the number of neocortical neurons limits the organism's information processing capacity, and that this then limits the number of relationships that an individual can monitor simultaneously, Dunbar explained in his foundational 1992 study. When a group's size exceeds this limit, it becomes unstable and begins to fragment. This then places an upper limit on the size of groups which any given species can maintain as cohesive social units throughout time. End quote. But the Stockholm University researchers say that neocortex size in non-human primates doesn't necessarily equate to human socialization. Quoting again, It's not possible to make an estimate for humans with any precision using available methods and data, says evolutionary biologist Andreas Wardle. In their study, the researchers used modern statistical methods, including Bayesian and generalized least squares, or GLS, analyses to take another look at the relationship between group size and brain-slash-neocortex size in primate brains, with the advantage of updated datasets on primate brains. The results suggested that stable human group sizes might ultimately be much smaller than 150 individuals, with one analysis suggesting up to 42 individuals could be the average limit, with another estimate ranging between a group of 70 to 107. Ultimately, however, enormous amounts of imprecision in the statistics suggest that any method like this, trying to compute an average number of stable relationships for any human individual based off brain volume considerations, is unreliable at best. Specifying any one number is futile, the researchers write in their study. A cognitive limit on human group size cannot be derived in this manner. End quote. Gizmodo points out that Dunbar first came up with these numbers before the days of social media, when the World Wide Web had just launched. Giving credence to the recent study, this kind of illustrates the impact of culture on our conception of relationships and on our behaviors, what it means to be friends with someone, and how many people you can continue to keep in touch with over your lifetime has changed somewhat. 
Although, back in 2012, a Gizmodo writer did attempt to reach out to a thousand Facebook friends and ultimately had to admit that Dunbar was completely correct with that 150 number for casual but stable friendships. Of course, that was just a fun journalistic experiment, not an actual lab study. And I do like this concluding point from Gizmodo about how our conception of friendship and relationships may be about to shift once again. Quote, We've come a long way even from the dawn of social media. Perhaps the pandemic reminded you of the relationships that matter most in your life, or helped you split from the friends of convenience. Maybe you never want to see 150 people in the same video call again, much less in real life. Like a lot of rules, Dunbar's number may not hold up in the face of humanity's huge diversity. End quote. At the start of the year, I shared the sad news that one of the ravens from the Tower of London went missing and was presumed dead. Now, apart from being sad, it's always newsworthy when one of those ravens goes missing because there's a legend that says if the ravens ever leave the tower, the kingdom will fall. And, you know, what with Brexit and COVID and the general 2020-ness of everything, the idea of the whole realm collapsing didn't really sound as far-fetched as usual. In fact, the Tower of London has been closed to tourists for the longest period of time since World War II. But they got some good news back in March when two new raven chicks were born to longtime tower residents Huggin and Munnan. And now, to celebrate the grand reopening of the Tower of London to tourists on May 19th, they have asked the public to vote on the name of one of the baby corvids. Sadly, it's not an open vote, you can't recommend names, so no Raven McRaven face here. And unfortunately, I don't think the Tower of London will accept this excellent name suggestion from Gabby Hutchinson Crouch on Twitter, either. She proposed naming her Corvid19. No, instead, the options are Florence, Matilda, Brandwin, Bronte, or Winifred. Apart from being exceptionally English names, they all have strong namesakes. There's Florence Nightingale and the Bronte sisters, of course, as well as Branwen, a Celtic deity whose name means Blessed Raven, very appropriate. Also, Matilda, the, quote, fearsome medieval monarch Empress Matilda, who battled her cousin Stephen of Blois over her claim to the English throne in the 1130s and 40s, end quote, and also Winifred Maxwell, quote, Countess of Nithsdale, remembered for plotting her husband Lord Nithsdale's incredible escape from the tower in 1716 disguised as a woman, end quote. The little unnamed raven chick's brother, who for some reason was already named, also bears the weight of an imposing namesake. He is named Edgar, after Edgar Allan Poe. And I'm honestly just gobsmacked it took them this long to name any of the ravens Edgar. Surely this is Edgar VII or something. In any case, you can vote at the link in the show notes, and the name will be announced at the reopening ceremony on May 19th. Sixty years ago, on this day, Alan Shepard Jr. became the first American in space on board the Mercury Redstone 3 or Freedom 7 mission. And today, Blue Origin used that milestone to announce more details about their first crewed flight, which will officially take place on July 20th, which is, of course, the anniversary of humanity's first steps on the moon. 
The suborbital rocket New Shepard, named after Alan Shepard, will ferry a crew of astronauts and at least one paying customer into space. It was announced today that one seat will be auctioned off, with proceeds going to Blue Origin's philanthropic arm Club for the Future, which builds curriculum and other programs encouraging interest in space for K-12 students. The July 20th flight will go up to the edge of space and hang out for about 20 minutes while passengers experience microgravity and enjoy the sights before going back down. So, while still the chance of a lifetime, it's also not quite as existentially frightening as going for a longer trip to the ISS or the moon. SpaceX Dragon's upcoming all-civilian Inspiration4 flight, however, will be staying in space for three days. They're expected to launch in the Resilience spacecraft on September 15th. So there is all your space tourism news for the day. More to come in the run-up to these historical events, I'm sure. But that is it for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotke.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I'll talk to you again tomorrow.